0: Welcome to Catholic Health USA, the podcast of the Catholic Health Association of the United States. I'm Brian Rudin. My co-host is Marianne Steiner. Hi, Marianne. Hi, Brian. Thanks for inviting me back. And this time we're on the road. We are on the road. Um, Last time we were
1: fortunate enough to invite an author from out of town into the St. Louis studios. And today um, we both get to travel to this great conference and also to uh,
0: talk with several people who presented there. Yeah, we are in Irving, Texas, at the uh, headquarters of Christus Health. They were uh, gracious enough to host the conference, which is When Disasters Strike, a special convening for international and domestic response. We had a great representation from Catholic healthcare. We had, uh, obviously, Christus, Bon Secours, uh, Providence St. Joe's, Trinity, CHI Ascension, as well as the Catholic Relief Services, Catholic Charities, uh, and FEMA, and then SSM. So we had really, uh, I think, a, a great group of speakers. Um, A lot of the focus, uh, because we are getting into hurricane season, obviously we've had wildfires, tornadoes, disasters happen.
1: Disasters happen, unfortunately, but um, Christus has had probably as much experience as anyone, particularly in the hurricane front, so... um it's particularly helpful to hear what they have to say about what happened in the last year with um the two big hurricanes harvey and irma
0: and so our first guest is lance Mendiola. lance is the vice president of facilities management and construction for christus health and marianne i think you wanted to follow up with lance on uh, some of the points he made uh during the conference
1: hi lance it's good to talk with you um i was so grateful for your comments uh throughout the um summit or meeting um And I know you've got a lot of wisdom about what happened during Hurricane Harvey and how Christus responded and how Christus has continued to respond in terms of um, one of your comments about how the recovery is so much longer than the actual incident. So let's talk about Harvey first and then we'll talk about um, some of the other experience you've had with disasters.
2: Well, hi, Marianne, and thank you for the opportunity to visit with you. Yeah, I think part of the thinking is that there's a lot of energy on the initial response. And people come together and want to get to the disaster location and support. In actuality, the recovery process the is much, much longer. And it could take uh, it could take a few months to several years to recover from it. And particularly if you're dealing with FEMA and any Uh, agency that requires you to quantify the amount of damages and submit that as a reimbursement.
1: Um, It was interesting to me that Chris just made what in retrospect seems like really good decisions about what to do in terms of diverting um, people to to better places or what they were going to keep open. Um, and how they were going to use staff and other resources. Could you talk about that a little bit in terms of the advanced planning for how that came about?
2: Yes, absolutely. In fact, uh, specific to Hurricane Harvey, we watched the development of Harvey as uh, out in the Atlantic and as it worked its way into the Caribbean and ultimately into the Gulf Coast and made its way. Looking at the cone of uncertainty, we had a sense that it was going to impact either Corpus Christi or swing north and eastward, northeastward, and probably impact our ministries in southeast Texas. Um, In fact, we, we, prior to the storms, we understand what our facilities can withstand in terms of wind force. So, Quickly, we ensured that all the materials on the roofs are battened down, um, that the roof drains are properly, there's not any debris on the roof. We, we pre-mobilized and staged the emergency generators, 500-ton chillers, and we, in fact, even had remediation teams in place. Um, so we were ready to, to withstand the storm. What we... What the local ministry CEO said when they finally assessed the situation and said, What do you all think, corporate? Should we, should we ev- uh, evacuate our high acuity patients now? And should we consider closing? And based on the design of our hospitals, particularly in Corpus, we decided that the best thing to do is to shelter in place. Mm -hmm. And once that decision was made, there was an effort to ensure that we support the local ministry in that decision.
1: One of the messages that came through loud and clear um, throughout this meeting is that there was a lot of collaboration and a lot of solidarity that happens in in a disaster like this. Um... As VP of Facilities for Christus, you have a lot of decisions to make, and as you described, a lot of planning to do in advance. I'm curious, though, when, you, when you're working with government agencies and with NGOs and with um, Red Cross, and how, how do you know where you fall in that line? What, when you make decisions about keeping someplace open or moving people to other places, who else do you have to check that with?
2: Good question. Um, within the Christus organization, um, because we're large, we have assets within our own inventory. The question becomes, what do we not have in our inventory that we have to rely on outside agencies, NGOs, um, government entities, and or private sector? Mm-hmm. And so early on, we decided that um, we needed to pre-stage the medical supplies and the generators and the chillers, um, we didn't realize how long that the event was going to last. So we initially prepped and, and inventoried our system and said, um, what type of nurses are you going to need? The region told us that what type of nurses was going to be needed, and then we arranged the transportation to be able to set up a cyclic. Um, we will bring in nurses from other region, other ministries, into our, our Corpus Christi and even into our CTEX region. Mm-hmm. Um, and then just kind of bring in new batches of nurses. They'll work two, three days, and then we deliver the new batch of nurses, pick up the old ones, and repatriate them to their communities. And so... We decided as an organization that what we have control over is our assets, and the assets that we don't have control over, we're lean on the local agencies, mm-hmm. our local RACs, our local uh, emergency planning committee, and, and source those through them. In fact, um, working with the RACs, they were able to um, secure 6,000-gallon uh, tankers to be able to set up tankers and drivers, and bring them in. And once we set up the auxiliary domestic water supply, there was already a established um, logistics for drivers and tankers to be able to bring it in. And as as the tanks empty out, they kept it full. Mm -hmm. Because we were getting our water from another town in Nederland. This was domestic water. So the truckers would go in, fill up the tanks, bring it back to Beaumont, empty it into those tanks. As the hospital continued to use the water, it depletes it. But that operation was 24-7, just going and going. In fact, it was surprising to us that I didn't realize that truck drivers timed out like pilots. And I'm going, well, wow, they're actually timed out. What do we do now? We don't have enough enough, Uh um, drivers. So we, thank goodness, it was a a point where all of our tanks were topped out, we kind of calculated what what it would take for it to be at a stage where we'd be concerned was right about the time they'll be coming out of their um, timed out clock. And so as soon as they were ready to go, had an eight-hour rest period, they picked back up and delivered more water.
1: Well, that leads me to um, ask ask about something you said that I thought was uh, very pertinent, when you said that it starts locally and it ends locally. Um, And in my head, I got this image of this concentric circle, you know, and that the eye of the storm or the hub of the activity is this local entity and what spins out from there can be helpful or supportive but it shouldn't be intrusive. Is that fair?
2: That is absolutely dead on and it is fair. It's, It's important that that volunteers and people that respond to disasters. that The, the, the concept of disasters begin locally and end locally is that they're the ones that are impacted. They're the ones that know what type of resources they need, and they're the ones that would tell you, hey, we no longer need these resources. You can redeploy them. And, and so if they tell you we need more people, we need, we need, now we're at the point where we don't need any more generators, and now we need more chaplains. It's now time to deal with the psychological effects of the, of the recovery process. We have nurses, we have staff, we have the community that are in dire need of some social counseling and some, some of that. So mm-hmm. it, it has to end locally. They are, they're the ones that can say, I think we are good now. So... It's got to
1: be wonderful to hear. Um, you know, for fortunately, you are all now really, really good at dealing with hurricane disasters. Um, unfortunately, you've had too much practice that got you in that position. I'm wondering how you feel that training has prepared you for other kinds of disasters. So you mentioned wildfires and you mentioned even a shooting. I mean, do you feel like this uh, information and this practice and this skill is transferable
2: absolutely um, you know managing disasters is not a um, it's not a individual sport it's a team sport and it requires a multidisciplinary team that can come together in a room and we call that room command centers and and people call it incident command um, they call it outpost they call it all kinds of lingo. But the idea is to bring in the subject matter experts into a room and pay attention to the situation as it's unfolding and what the needs are as it's unfolding locally and let them call into the command center and say, we're anticipating this need. Can you all source this and get it to us? And that happens. And so that coordination with the multidisciplinary team allows the command center to be flexible to be able to anticipate the type of need that comes, that that is requested. So um, you'll, you know, and and when it comes to wildfires, you're going to want a a team, you're going to have members of the team that may be able to deal with respiratory illnesses. So you have a, uh, we have Dr. Gillian on the team, who's able to look at it from a medical perspective. We have infection preventionists on the team that can look at it from an infection control perspective. You have people on the team that are, um, you know, plant operations related that can look at it from that perspective and 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 suggest what needs to be replaced in terms of the air quality, the air filter as 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 the air handler units are sucking in smoke, all the different. Issues that might come up from that type of situation. That hopefully you have enough subject matter expert on around the team in the command center to be able to to manage those circumstances as they as they unfold.
1: Well, Lance, I know you were extremely generous throughout the conference in terms of your information and insights, um, and I'm particularly grateful that you were. Willing to talk with us because there are going to be a lot of people who couldn't attend but who can listen to this. So thank you very much.
2: You're welcome. Thank you. And we'll
0: be right back. Welcome back to Catholic Health USA, the podcast of the Catholic Health Association of the United States. I'm Brian Reardon. My co host is Marianne Steiner. In this segment, uh, we're actually going to talk to Karen Reich. She's uh, the chief executive officer for Bon Secours in St. Petersburg. Uh, She oversees the system senior services. And Karen has a really interesting story from uh, Hurricane Irma. So I'd, I'd like to ask Karen some questions here around... And have her tell the story of how they responded when Irma hit last year.
3: Sure. So uh, Bon Secours, uh, located in uh, central west coast of Florida in St. Petersburg, um, operates a post-acute continuum of care, which includes two facilities located next door to each other, a 274-bed uh, long-term and skilled nursing facility, and a 105-bed assisted living facility, and um, Historically, uh, we have been in an evacuation zone C, and as Hurricane Irma was uh, expected to come to the Tampa Bay area and enter as a Category 5, we were anticipating what would happen, whether or not our evacuation plans would have to be implemented. Um, But as a Level C, you know, that means Levels A and B would be going first. Um, But within about uh, 20 hours of the evacuation call, we were changed from a level C to a level A. And that meant that when the evacuation called, we were the
0: first to go. So Karen, can you describe uh, how the evacuation process worked?
3: So we had made arrangements um, that we do every year as part of our work. Some families choose to take their loved ones back with them and evacuate with their families. The vast majority stayed with us. And so that meant we were taking about 350 patients and residents, uh, frail elderly uh, patients with us 10 miles away uh, to higher ground. Um, The methods that we had uh, for transportation were reliant upon the county's transportation systems. They knew the type of patient population that we had, um, but what they sent us was regular school buses that were meant for children who not only are smaller in stature um, and more flexible with their limbs, um, but also very few of them have disabilities, and so the vast majority of the vehicles that were sent had no wheelchair lifts. This meant that our staff had to essentially body lift every single patient or resident onto the school buses in order to get them up safely and to do so in a manner that reduced fear and anxiety um, at a time when everyone was very concerned about doing what we needed to do safely and efficiently and as quickly as possible.
0: And you mentioned that you had to move everything.
3: We did. Um, where we were evacuating to was a new evacuation site for us. The prior uh, ev- experience of evacuation for our health system was back during Hurricane Charlie in 2004. And the site that uh, we evacuated to at that time was really not sufficient. And so one of the follow-ups from that was to look for a better place, a larger place that could accommodate our needs much, much more. And so uh, just a year prior to Hurricane Irma, we secured that location at St. Jude's Cathedral and School in St. Petersburg, um, which was at that time considered the highest level in the county, Um, And again, about 10 10 miles away. So the spaces we had to occupy there um, included essentially what you would see in any church or or, uh, temple uh, as a social hall, you know, that would be a a room that would be changeable for different kinds of uses um, where the vast majority of our patient population was cared for on the floor on mattresses that we brought with us from our facility. So there was nothing there you know, for us to use to actually care for our folks. So we had to bring the mattresses, we had to bring all of their medications, all of their belongings, food and water for seven days for all of our staff and all of our uh, individuals uh, that are in our care. Um, And so the sheer effort of moving everything literally other than the floor, the ceiling, and the walls of our facilities um, was a feat unto itself, let alone moving these frail elderly individuals in a way, um, not only that they would be as um, uh, comfortable as possible, but also safe and not have any accidents. Uh, We were really, really pleased that in the going Uh, of the evacuation, the five days we were evacuated and the returning, um, we had no injuries. Um, And even the individuals who were at the end of life at the time of our evacuation, um, on hospice, receiving palliative care services, um, did not pass away the entire time that we had evacuated, um, which was just really amazing.
0: And you talked about um, what a great experience it was at St. Jude's and how that, for example, people that were maybe in the school versus in the community hall, the meals were sort of on demand. It was really, I think, a, a sense of the solidarity that occurs in these disasters and people coming together.
3: One location where we had a, a vast majority of our nursing home patients um, was in the social hall area of the of the cathedral, which had its own kitchen. So all of our dietary staff were able to utilize the kitchen and all of the food uh, supplies that we brought and kind of cook somewhat normally for those folks but our assisted living uh, facility residents were located in the school so if you think about where you send your children to religious school or day school these are just classrooms that have you know space for tables and desks cubbies and maybe a counter where hand-washing is done prior to meals or snacks and in that environment I was very concerned about what we were going to be serving for breakfast the first morning after we had evacuated. And I came into the room that they had made sort of this makeshift kitchen in one of the classrooms. And I said, what are we serving for breakfast? And our chef Stefan looked at me and he said, eggs your way. And he literally was cooking any way, uh, any way desired eggs, uh, pancakes, Uh, Meats of your choice, toasts of your choice, juices, coffee, tea, and everything was being done essentially with a griddle and a pot of hot water to make full meals uh, for our residents to make sure that they would feel as little disruption to their normal activities of daily life as possible.
0: As all this is going along or going on, Karen, um, you've got your, your residents, your patients to care for. You've also got family members that are affected too.
3: So, yeah, on a personal level, um, had to evacuate my own home, had to evacuate my mother from her home, um, get her safely to my brother's, where they were going to be evacuating in place at his house, which was on slightly higher ground. And then among the patients and residents in our skilled nursing uh, facility and assisted living facility were my 99-year-old uncle and 93-year-old father-in-law. Um, and we, uh, we had a moment where the two of them were together uh, at the evacuation site. And they were having a conversation about their experience. And, you know, are you able to get up by yourself from the floor, the mattress on the floor? No, I need help. Do you need help? Yeah, I need help too. But they come and they help me and it's okay. And it's just a beautiful conversation between brothers-in-law who are very advanced in age, and you would never imagine that that kind of conversation could take place during something as really harrowing as an evacuation like this. Um, But it was sort of a testament to the calm that still came, even through the storm. I walked out during um, my rounds and was trying to uh, get some messages to a, a group of staff And I came upon one of the buildings where we had folks staying, and it was starting to rain. And we had our pastoral care team brought residents outside under an overhang, and light rain was starting to fall, and they were singing. This was our resident choir. They were singing. We had a group of uh, folks having yoga, seated yoga, We had masks going on. We had all the normal things that, uh, while they were more difficult to continue in this environment, um, spoke to sort of the normalcy that was necessary to decrease anxiety and increase comfort as much as possible. And so I think sometimes these situations do bring that sense of real unity and solidarity Uh, out of what can really otherwise be seen as chaos and um, is sort of a beautiful story of solidarity and tenderness amongst the staff and leadership towards and amongst each other and to the residents and patients and their families who put their trust in us to evacuate in a situation like this and maintain the dignity and the safety and the quality of their loved ones When you have care being provided, not in a private or semi-private room, but in a a social hall type of environment where you've got mattress next to mattress next to mattress, one of the most beautiful moments was watching the series of staff and volunteers who would come and hold up sheets around a given mattress while care was being provided at a personal level to maintain the privacy and dignity uh, of our people.
0: Karen, thanks so much. Uh, Great insight. I really appreciate you sharing the story. And we're going to be right back with Catholic Health USA. The Catholic Health Association of the United States has launched the Medicaid Makes It Possible campaign to ensure that Medicaid remains a viable, efficient, and effective program. This essential health insurance program and the lives of 74 million people who rely on it is at risk due to legislative and administrative proposals that could dramatically cut funding and reduce eligibility. There's a real risk that millions of vulnerable individuals and families will lose their health coverage. Now is the time to raise our collective voice about the importance of Medicaid. Tell us your story of how Medicaid makes it possible. For more information on how to participate, please visit chausa.org/medicaid. And we're back with Catholic Health USA, the podcast of the Catholic Health Association of the United States. I'm Brian Rudin My co-host is Marianne Steiner. In this last segment, we're just going to have a quick uh, comments from two of the speakers at the conference that we just uh, had here in Irving, Texas. This podcast is coming from Christus Health in Irving. Uh, where we convened uh, a lot of representatives who deal with disaster response across Catholic healthcare, as well as uh, Catholic charities. Uh, we had a representative from FEMA, the Catholic Relief Services. Uh, next, I want to check in, though, with um, Kim Burgo, who is with Catholic Charities of the United States. And Kim had some comments about the role that Catholic charities play. Kim, you're the Senior Director of Disaster Operations. Thank you for being with us. And tell us a little bit about what Catholic Charities does in these disasters and, and how you work with Catholic hospitals.
4: Right. Well, Catholic Charities, uh, has, as a network, has over 160 offices across the country. Uh, so each Catholic Charities office responds at the local level in their community. We really encourage agencies to build partnerships ahead of time uh, and uh, work closely, whether it's with a hospital system, uh, local emergency management, uh, other partners in the community. One, you know, example I think of of how the Catholic hospital system and local Catholic charities have worked together. I think can be found in Joplin, where uh, the local hospital there was hit incredibly hard. And but because of the partnership that they had locally, they were able to move critical patients over to the uh, Catholic High School and set up an emergency room and a uh, treatment center right there in, in the uh, high school. So those kinds of things. Um, of course, every disaster is different. You don't know where uh, or how it's going to strike. Um, so we really do encourage that kind of um, interaction ahead of time. Um, we do have a training uh, that we could, uh, that really we encourage uh, all to participate in. The training is called the Applied Institute for Disaster Excellence. It is a week-long training that we provide uh, with a Catholic twist that uh, certainly gives information from beginning to end. What is it that happens in a disaster? Everything from what's a FEMA to how do we deal with racial diversity in a disaster? Or people who are um, migrants or the undocumented during a disaster. Um, Of course, Catholic Charities is involved in the Whole wide range of disaster events, everything from early to response to long term recovery to mental health to uh, disaster case management. So we really encourage uh, folks to engage. We cannot, as Catholic Charities, do this on our own. And so we really work with partners and others in the community and within the Catholic Church to be able to do this together. Thanks, Kim. Next,
0: I'd like to introduce. Dr. Alex Garza. Dr. Garza is the Chief Quality Officer with SSM Health. Uh, previously to serving as uh, Chief Quality Officer at SSM Health, he was served as Assistant Secretary and Chief Medical Officer for the uh, U.S. Department of Homeland Security. Uh, Dr. Garza, really appreciated your comments during this convening. and One of the things that was interesting that you touched on is um, how do we define what is a disaster?
5: I, I try and boil things down into very simple terms. I'm like, what is a disaster? What does that actually mean? So, uh, And so the, the equation that I use in the presentation of, you know, uh, hazard plus vulnerability divided by capacity equals disaster, um, you can apply it. What I like about it is you can apply it sort of at the individual level, but also at sort of the macro level as well. And so in, in a way, it is sort of... Um, I don't know what a disaster is, but I know it when I see it. So even as an individual, if you're vulnerable and you're presented with a hazard and you don't have the capacity to deal with it at an individual level, that could be a disaster for you. But then at a macro level, if it, uh, if, if a, uh, a hazard takes out the electrical grid or floods a city, obviously they don't have capacity to deal with that, and that's when it becomes a disaster. So um, for me, it, it sort of frames it um, on, on what constitutes a disaster, but it allows enough flexibility for people to sort of interpret it in their in their own way.
0: Was there one thing that you learned from this that maybe you, you hadn't
5: thought of before? Yes and no. So a lot of the stuff, uh, you know, as, as people were saying it, I was like, yeah, that I've, I've, I've seen that, you know, and so I'm writing notes down, like, this is where that happened in, in my life. I think some of the things that I learned, uh, like I had, Uh, very little visibility on the depth and breadth of Catholic Relief Services and and Catholic Health Services' response um, to disasters. So to me, that was really eye-opening, that there are people out there that work in Catholic health systems that do this sort of work, uh, not just domestically but internationally, and and do it very well.
0: Thank you, Dr. Garza. And finally, as we wrap up here, uh, I want to check in with Julie Minda, Julie is the associate editor for Catholic Health World. She was here at the conference, and she's going to be covering uh, this conference in Catholic Health World. And Julie, uh, if you could, just for a couple of minutes uh, to kind of wrap up, give us um, a couple of your high-level takeaways from the conference.
6: Well, something that struck me is why it's so important to prepare. You know, when you see these disasters on television, it's awful. You see these people in need deep water. You see them running away from burning homes, and your instinct is, I want to go there and help somehow. And so it turns out that in a lot of these disasters, there are a lot of people who just flock to employees of health systems and such. They flock to try to help. They want to go and be part of the response, the initial response. And the reason, one of the reasons it's so important to prepare is that you need an organized approach, and you need to allow the people who are um, are knee deep in this, so to speak, that, that have already done the preparations and know what they're doing to respond. So, a theme I heard is to have policies and procedures so that when people are coming with the best intentions to just try to, I just want to fly to this place and help, you have the policies and procedures in place to channel that energy perhaps to a long term response or, or, or some other response like that. But they're very organized in how they respond. A lot of times it's, it's simply giving cash, which you know, to Some people may seem like, ah, oh, that's kind of not so a touchy-feely way to respond, but the organizations that spoke at this conference, they do this all the time, and they understand if you give that cash, they'll be able to use it locally in the way they know that they're supposed to be using it in the most efficient way. So I, I found that interesting. And over and over again, the theme came out, we are going to talk to the people who are on the ground and make sure we know they want our help, <laughs> that – we can be of service to them and that we're providing what they want us to provide all of those were key themes that i came out with
0: julie we look forward to reading your article in catholic health world thanks for uh being at the conference and again i think it was a great great couple of days of discussions and really gave us a lot to think about as how and how we respond to disasters that you know are going to going to happen
6: all right well it's a pleasure thank you <laughs>
0: So, Marion, I think a really uh, great conference. Uh, I think we got a lot of good information shared, and hopefully this podcast shared some of that. Again, uh, look for Catholic Health World for an article on that. And I know in Health Progress, there's been a lot of articles on, you know, some of the ethical uh, considerations around uh, disaster response. Obviously, we've done a lot of articles on international outreach. And so I think this is an area that, again, Catholic healthcare has a lot to offer. And I, I think this convening of experts uh, hopefully, we'll, we'll help people as we prepare for the next disaster that's going to happen.
1: You know, Brian, these are such helpful meetings, not only for the experts who are here and who share good ideas, but they're really helpful to uh, the people of Catholic Health World and Health Progress because. These are where we get our stories. This is where we get energized about what's going on in the ministry and what new initiatives are taking place and who can lead us into the um, information and good work that we'll be doing ahead. So thanks a lot for including me.
0: Yeah, great to have you here. Thank you for listening. This has been another edition of Catholic Health USA, the podcast of the Catholic Health Association of the United States. Special thanks to Christus Health for hosting us, for providing the space. Uh, to record this podcast. Appreciate their help. And as always, thanks to Clayton Studios in St. Louis County, Missouri for their technical assistance in putting the podcast together. Until next time, we'll see you.